You, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where I am, but I'm getting some good vibes. Is, is it okay if I hang out for a while? Yeah, man. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. How, how long am I going to have to watch you attempt to dance? Dude, I'm just, this is my happy dance, man. This is a happy day. You got Luke <laughs> Copeland back. Well, will you cut the music so that we can get into our uh, uh, warm, fuzzy greetings and all that jazz? Welcome back, Luke. Oh. You just can't help oh, your what to find a good song for you to come back to. I, you know what? This is actually a near perfect welcome back song. So thank you so much for. Uh, <laughs> um, Mike Alex didn't get no music. You know what? I fe I feel special. I just I just went back and listened to the poem that you wrote. Oh. And now I'm getting to hear my song. Thank you so much for the welcome back, Eric. I miss you. Oh, audience, I missed you. Uh, Chris Date. Because I know that you now listen to our podcast every week. He, you know, he's a big banter right now. <laughs> he he didn't join the banter club, but he he was about to. We almost well, huge thank you to Chris because that was awesome having him on, uh, and a big thank you to Mike who I thought did a pretty great job filling my shoes, and those are some big shoes to fill. So I mean, goodness gracious, man. We're talking size 15, 16 theological shoes here. So, and personality shoes. Hey, Carolyn, you're, you're size 15, 16 shoe, man. That's like Shaquille O'Neal type shoe. I'm, I'm telling you, and Mike filled them brilliantly. So uh, may, maybe someday when you eventually, you know, take vacation, which I assume you'll do at some point, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have Mike on as my co-host. I will take vacation when Satan takes vacation. How about that? You know what? I'm not, like you. I'm not I'm not a mere mortal man like you. If you like Satan wish to reject God's good gift of Sabbath, then ha you know, go for it, my friend. You know what? I like that. I I miss you, Luke. I miss you. Now tell you right before we came on air, you listened to for the first time the ode to Luke, my yeah. my, my my poem for you. And yeah. I offered a scale of one to ten, one being never do poetry again. Someone actually gave me like a negative. Four, I think. Uh, and I forget who that was. They gave me a solid negative four. My wife told me to never do poetry again. Um, she was utterly embarrassed, probably not nearly as embarrassed as she might be after I just danced for this intro. Mm -hmm. um, I got no tens. Okay. I'm, I'm going to give your poem a compliment sandwich. So I don't know. In, in terms of feeling how I felt when you read the poem, 10 out of 10. Oh, because I felt so warm and appreciated that you would take the time to do that. Uh, in terms of meter, rhyme, structure, maybe like a four. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't submit it for any awards anywhere, but. <laughs> but okay. But. Uh, in terms of delivery, again, a 10 out of 10. Because if you are going to read a bad poem for dozens of people, do it with Moxie. And you did. Uh, first off, we don't mention Moxie on the podcast anymore. You obviously did not watch all the episodes while you were gone. What's funny is I use that term because I did watch that episode. Uh, very, I like it. You're very punny. You're very punny. 
You know, if you can't reference your own show when you're not there, what can you do in life? Well, you know, it's kind of like the person who quotes themselves. <laughs> you are, you are for the audience. Uh, Eric is referring to himself. He <laughs> quotes himself without knowing it. When do I quote myself? Oh no, no, no! It was that I quoted you. I yeah, quoted yeah. you to you, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was well, and I didn't know it. And you know, I hey, you know, what can I say? Yes. Uh, well, um. Eric's got something he wanted to bring up at the beginning of the show, but quick shout out to Richard Waters. The subject of this show was actually inspired by Richard. So Richard, thank you for the suggestion, my friend. And you and I will still talk later. Uh, first of all, just because I enjoy talking to you, but secondly, because I think this is worth discussing. Uh, Richard is facing some KJV only advocates in his own life and uh, I don't, I'm not saying we're going to solve all his problems today, but we are going to talk about that particular controversy. But first, I think I think we're going to solve all his problems. What yeah. What's the purpose of doing this podcast if we're not solving the world's problems, Luke? You know, Eric, um, I am being reminded how much I missed you in this show, and also how unhealthy being on this show is for me because you and I share a a uh, a penchant for arrogant exaggeration that I just can't get enough of. So I, yeah, I agree. The goal today is to settle once and for all any controversies regarding translation or interpretation of scripture or any controversies about textual criticism or manuscript tradition. All of them will be resolved today, all before 315. And you're welcome. Boom. Yeah. You don't need James White, but if you do, you can go pick up his book, the King James only controversy. I think yeah, that's what I, and, I'm, and uh, I'm, Dr. James White, although sometimes I, I don't like his tone on certain things and, and I have other issues with him, um, uh, but um, he is a great brother in, in the Lord. He's a good scholar. He is a great expert in textual criticism and fighting against King James only ism. And I'm going to mention a few of his resources, but real quick, let me just share with you and our audience, Eric, a bit of a nugget that I sort of got during my time away. As I was considering some of the great theological minds uh, and uh, voices, defenders of the gospel, who can sometimes be a bit abrasive. And I'm not justifying that, but but this is the nugget that I got. Watchdogs bark at burglars and squirrels. Okay. Okay. Where did you so, get that from? Huh? Where'd you get that from? I mean, I'd like to say the Lord, but you're a cessationist, so I don't think you'll receive that well. Why don't oh, you? Go? I'm not a cessationist. Okay, I am a, I am a cautious continuationist. Okay? Oh, okay. I thought I thought you were a gracious cessationist. I'm gonna have to put you in a different category. <laughs> no, I am a cautious uh, uh, continuationist. I don't think. Uh, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you and I are in the same basket. I'm a cautious continuationist. Wow, look at that. Man, we're like yeah. bosom buddies. You know what? See, this is why we talk. I made an assumption about you. See? Uh, you, you, know, you know what they say, say about assume. I, I do, and we're not going to repeat it on the show. But to, to answer your question, uh, I I think it was from the Lord. I think I think that he, re he revealed that to me. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Yeah. Hey, so, I, um, I do want to just before we get into things, all yeah. joking aside, I don't. This is not. This is not a joking matter. Um, for those of you who are part of an Advent Christian Church, many of you uh, m- may not realize that um, our missions arm, which are world missions, um, uh, they take up a fundraiser every single year called Penny Crusade. Many of you may have heard that before. So. Um, each church kind of runs their own penny crusade where they're trying to raise funds for foreign missions. It goes to the ACGC world missions, um, arm. And, um, as of right now, they are at about 50% of where they typically are in years past. Um, that means they're half funded. This is in large part, um, maybe in total part to, um, the COVID crisis that we find ourselves because churches, um, apparently, you know, they're, um, the funding for United Ministries has remained steady from my understanding, but it's been the Penny Crusade funding that has really suffered because churches aren't having their fundraisers. They aren't getting together like they're used to. So their rhythm has been disrupted. So they're at 50% capacity um, or, or where their expected budget was. This They're at a critical tipping point. They are considering um, drastic things, uh, potentially cutting funding to missionaries overseas. So first and foremost, we are a gospel-focused, Christ-centered program here at Bible and Banter. Um, so is Advent Christian Voices. We are here for the church, for the people of God, to serve God, to see his name proclaimed among all the nations. That's Luke's heart. That's my heart. So I'm going to ask this of you. If you will, I am posting right now a link to Penny Crusade. You can go here and find instructions on how you can give to Penny Crusade. They need help, whether it is 50 cents or $50, whatever it might be, please give to Penny Crusade. Um, I'm actually running, I'm not, I'm not trying to um, uh, sell books with this, but I'm saying I, I put it out on Facebook today on my author page and on my personal page. If you haven't purchased my book yet, or if you have, you can get the PDF version on my website, ericbreynolds.com. You can go on their special offers and um, you can purchase my book there. All proceeds will go to Penny Crusade for the month Ooh, of Shakalaka. So I like, we need, we need to support foreign missions as well as home missions. All hands on deck kind of moment right now. This is where the church comes together. They need our help. Um, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are proclaiming the gospel in places where it's either unsafe or it's just it's just growing. And um, some of these relationships we've had for years, decades, and we certainly um, some of these places even have gone through droughts, are missing out on food because they've been unable to get um, food because, you know, our, our systems have been shut down for so long. They need your help. They need my help. Please go to Penny Crusade. Um, it's, uh, I just posted the link, go to Penny Crusade, find out how you can give anything you can will help them. Anything you can mail a check. If you need to, you can pay online, do whatever you need to. Yeah. And, and there's a reason it's called Penny Crusade. They'll literally take your pennies. So there is no minimum gift, but contrary to popular belief, they will also take your dollars. <laughs> uh, they, they will take your pennies, but not, sure, but, but not fives, not fives, tens, twenties, only the singles. Uh, they will take they will take any dollar amount. That's a joke. That's a joke. Yes. Uh, so please go ahead, help them out a, a, as much as you can with anything you can. Um, 
50% capacity. And we're not talking about like 50% of their annual budget. We're talking about compared to last year. We're comparing apples to apples yeah. here. Um, and, and right now the apple is half the size as it has been in years past. And it's already been on, on a decline. It's already been on a sharp decline. Mm-hmm. So um, they need our help. Will you help Luke? Yes. And I'm going to echo what Carolyn said. So uh, it's looking like September is going to be our penny crusade month. So I'm not going to guarantee that we'll be able to make up the other 50%, but I I know at least two churches now that are going to be helping out within the next six weeks. Awesome. My encouragement to you and to Carolyn's church is have a plan in case we can't get back together in September. So, um, well, we're we're probably going to be doing this, you know, making a run at this, regardless of whether or not people are meeting physically. We're going to find a way to promote uh, Penny Crusade with or without physical meeting. Good for you guys. Praise the Lord. Well, that's it, man. That, that's uh, that's a that's a little bit of bad news, a little bit of good news. Uh, it's an opportunity. It, listen, it is an opportunity. We are going to have as the church. As our denomination, we're going to have to reconstitute. We're going to have to restructure, reform, all those R words. We're going to have to do it. Yeah. Um, this is an opportunity for us to really move forward. There have been instances in uh, in church history and in Advent Christian history where we see turning points. Right now, I think, and I pray that we are at a turning point, that we can come together as a people and, and take the uniqueness of the Advent Christian voice of the gospel into the world and make Christ known. Rock on. That's all I got, Luke. So uh, that's today's show, guys. Uh (laughs) I I was just going to say, I I missed Eric, but I also missed the chat. And the chat are already putting my feet to the fire as they should. They want to know what I mean when I say that watchdogs bark at burglars and squirrels. And Nancy, that is very funny. I am not going to try to solve that problem for you. But that Uh is very funny. Uh, Nancy saying that she has more problems with squirrels than burglars or that squirrels basically are burglars. So I'm, I, that I, I can't deal with that particular problem. What I, what I mean by that is that, um, ardent defenders of the gospel, people who are concerned with attacks that could truly be called antichrist, I think tend to be, and the reason I was thinking about this is I was, I was just trying to process how do I categorize Brothers in the Lord who love Christ and his gospel, but don't always model or practice the kindness, the gentleness, sort of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the New Testament. Um, And this was just sort of a helpful way of me to understand it. Okay, watchdogs are important. Um, They sometimes bark at burglars and sometimes there's a squirrel or a bird or, or something harmless that they bark at because that's sort of their job. And so I, I think sometimes uh, the most ardent and important defenders of the gospel, their strength is their weakness. And that what they do is that they attack uh, those who attack the gospel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes maybe they attack things that are not quite as serious as other things. Yeah, but I also appreciate, I, I mean... You know, um, James White's one of them. You know, he barks at, at almost everything. Mm-hmm. And he can certainly come across as prickly at times. Um, yeah. I, I think I think maybe it's just his demeanor. I don't think he means it in a in a manner that is calling someone 
like not a brother. You know what I mean? Like so I think so I think he's not anathematizing people yeah. in his but, he's, but, but so we're we're talking about him uh, we're going to talk about him a lot today because of the subject, but I would I would put RC Sproul in a similar category. Oh, good. At, what? Yes, yes. What? And, and at to, and at times um El Moler. I mean, I think I think there are a lot of really very important uh, uh brothers in the Lord who have done uh such faithful work and are really defenders of the gospel. I mean, they, they, they as winsome as it comes. Sometimes, sometimes. Okay. Well, Luke, you're entitled to be right. <laughs> See, you, you, you missed me, but you forget that I say these things. So you might not miss me so much by the end of the show. No, I, I do miss you. Although, you know, I, I don't want to downgrade what, what Mike did for the last couple of weeks. I mean, he really did a tremendous job. Uh, in fact, you know, I think, I think if either one of us or both of us ended up croaking, um, he could take the helm of, uh, of the program for sure. Yes, although I don't, I don't plan on croaking anytime soon, and I hope I hope you don't either. Uh, the some some someone who some some people who do like to croak, not die, but make a lot of noise, are those who hold to a view of scripture that says there is only one legitimate translation, and in fact, in some cases, only one legitimate version at all in any language. Mm -hmm. which is the King James Version. And we want to talk about this today, and we're going to try to talk about it with some nuance. So I want to be clear, uh, be gracious, peaceful, don't respond with an aggressive, defensive manner. Yeah, I would I would just say uh, um, our goal is always to bark at burglars and not birds or squirrels or a car passing by. <laughs> but, so we're going to try to talk about this with some nuance, and I think uh, there is sort of some question here, and it's going to kind of depend on how extreme someone takes this view. Of, okay, is this a squirrel or a burglar? Because there are some people who hold to KJV onlyism who I don't. I see them as basically harmless, um, and then there are some who really seem to be striking at the heart of the gospel. And before we get into this, let's make one thing clear. This is not a an anti-King James Version message that Eric and I are, are going to be trying to send today. Correct. Neither, neither you or I are onlyists in our preferred Bible version. No. And I would say of the Bible versions that we have, of the translations we have in English, I actually put the King James Version toward the top. Um, I, I think uh, ESV... Eric might feel differently than me, but NIV, NASB, Holman's, uh, New King James, King James. I think all of those versions. What about the NASB, man? NASB, I think is probably. I thought I mentioned if I if I didn't, them too. Um, I think I think those are all perfectly fine versions, and there I would even say too there are other versions that can be helpful for study. They're not necessarily great translations if you really want to. Um, rigorously exegete the passages, but I even, I even, um, I don't mind paraphrases as long as you're there. Paraphrases because it it lends interpretation onto the the interpreter, the yeah. or translator rather than the reader. Well, I don't, e I don't even see paraphrases as, as translation. The, I just see them as devotional. The message, NLT. Um, you know, the message or amplified version, mm -hmm. those 
those are okay if I think they're I think they're okay if you're young and have and I mean young isn't like a child or like an early teenager or like if you have a mental handicap um like it like if you I don't why is this funny I forgot just how uh, uh pointed your statements are go on well because they are they are so simplified. Um, where you you miss out on the on what the Bible is actually saying when you use those terms uh, when you use those. So, terms. I, I I think I think I generally agree with you. I I don't know if I would you quite have. I, do, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't see, I I would say like the amplified message. Um, there's probably a couple more. If Bickford's watching. He probably has has some of mine. He's he's more into this than I am, mm-hmm. but. You know, I try to be gracious with people. Like if I have someone who's 30 years old and they're reading the message, um, I would simply just I would buy them a, a a Bible that's more accurate, you know, and and I probably wouldn't say like, hey, this is a Bible for, you know. Um, yeah, no, look, these I, I think those paraphrases can be helpful alongside an actual translation. They are not a good substitute. So if if all you're reading is NLT or the message or amplified version, um, I would strongly recommend against that. But if you're reading a proper translation of the Bible, I think that those resources can be helpful in the same way that a devotional or a study Bible or any other extra biblical yeah, resource. Sure. And, and I just want to share, like, because Carolyn and Nancy have, have chimed in, which I really appreciate. Um, those, they, they can be helpful with difficult passages, absolutely. I don't think that we should totally discard them. I'm talking about if it's your daily rider, right? The mm-hmm. one you carry around, the one you you read every single day, um, because you can't really grow with it. It's it's almost like if it's like if you're saying, well, you know, a kid a kid needs to learn math, so we're just going to do simple addition. Well, eventually you gotta you gotta go from um, single digits to to double digits and triple digits. Um, you know, I rather I rather have something that if you can help them along the way in understanding get mm-hmm. them a, get them a solid translation and it doesn't I, have to be the nasb that's probably a bad one to start off with because it can be more difficult more challenging to read i i, I really like bickford's comment i think it's very helpful to this uh, a true translation needs to be our main study resource but paraphrases can help us comprehend some of the big picture of the text so that's I what i that's what I would say. It can it can be a helpful resource in understanding a proper translation. Yeah, I would I would I put it in the realm of devotional material. Yeah, you can take it or leave it. It's not yeah. necessary. But that so we're actually starting to get to the heart of what we want to discuss today, which is sort of the nature of scripture uh, and how it was uh, inspired, how it was preserved, because at the heart of this controversy, and let's just go ahead and sort of lay out what the actual controversy is. And I'm going to do my best to be gracious and nuanced and lay out sort of a spectrum because like any other group, KJV onlyists are not some monolith that all believe exactly the same thing. That's right. Um, so I, I'm going to give sort of three points along the spectrum going from what I would say most reasonable to least. Okay. So on the one hand, <laughs> you have KJV onlyists who would say the KJV is the best translation of the Bible that we have, and therefore the only one that we should use. Then you have KJV onlyists who say, 
KJV is the best translation, the only one we should use, and people who use other translations are in, endangering themselves. Then you have people who say, KJV is the best translation, it's the only one we should use, and if you use any other translation, you are eternally condemned. So that's sort of the spectrum. And the, the what they all share is the notion that the King James version of the Bible, uh, that it's not just a good translation, but it's actually an inspired translation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, th and this is where it, it gets really interesting is I think if you have a believing view of scripture, so you think it's more than just the recordings of the thoughts or ideas of some people who encountered God, but it's actually, it comes from God himself through those authors. I think everyone who takes that view would say the original manuscripts. So like the book of Peter, what Peter wrote, or, or the book of uh, Romans, what Paul wrote, that those are inspired, infallibly inspired. They Every word, every line, every phrase was exactly what God wanted it to be. There, at least in my experience, very few people who actually have thought deeply about scripture and translation and the transmission of the manuscripts over time, uh, which is something else we'll talk about today, very few would say that the English Bible in front of you is infallibly inspired in exactly the same way that the originals were. Now we believe that it's been reliably transmitted, faithfully translated, that we can actually call it the word of God, that we can actually teach from it and treat it as the sole rule of faith and life. I don't think you have to be able to read Greek or Hebrew to say that you have the word of God. Um, it can be helpful, but it's not necessary or required. What's interesting about the KGB only is, is that they seem to sort of take the view that unless you believe the English text is infallibly inspired, the translation, in exactly the same way as the original letters, prophets, histories of scripture, mm -hmm. you can't actually call it the word of God. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. I um I had to pre I preached on the woman caught in adultery when we got to it in John seven and eight. Oh, how dare you! Um, and most um, if you if you know the Gospel of John very well, you know that that is a debated passage on whether or not that is actually scripture. And I was very cautious. Bickford knows this because I had talked. I consulted with him on whether or not I should preach, um, preach that text. And I decided um, after much prayer and actually looking at other pastors that I admire what they did when they got to the text and some of them did preach it. Um, I kind of borrowed from John Piper a little bit in his approach and spent the first probably third to a half of the sermon talking about textual criticism and the um, validity or, or the reliability of scripture and how we, and, and how we can. So, you know, there's two, there's two main ways that we look at the original manuscript. So you have the Byzantine text, which is um, we also um, get the Textus Receptus from that or the TR, which is um, how the King James Version was translated. So it was translated from the Textus Receptus, except for um, Revelation, which that was actually translated from Latin. 
So they used, um, <laughs> which to me is always insane when someone who says the King James version is the only ver- the only inspired version, because they essentially had a had a Latin translation from the Greek and then translated the Latin into English. So you're talking about a translation from a translation, which mm-hmm. is not which is not good. Um, so let, let me interject something here quickly. Despite the fact that that is the case, it's still a very good translation. I don't think it's quite as good as ESV, NASB, I would say NIV, I don't think Eric would, but um, I I don't think it's quite as good as the modern ones, but it is still a solid one. Nevertheless, everything you're saying, Eric, is historically accurate. And and Palma, anyone who says if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, just stop having a conversation with them. Like you can't reason with those people. Well, we're actually, I think that'll be what we get into toward the end of this conversation. Okay. What, which conversations are worth having? Like which yeah. KJV only is, can you actually talk to? Yeah. Someone, so, someone who thinks that Paul actually had an, had the King James version. Like if they wanted to say like, oh, they had the Textus Receptus, right? So that they had, uh, okay. Like I can, I can, I, I can get that for a dollar. Uh, but um, that's a little bit more believable than, he had the. Pa, he didn't. Pa, I don't even think he spoke English. Pa, English pa, wasn't even a language at that point, was it? Pa, it wasn't. I don't think. Well, not not in the way that we speak it. I I think no. I think the earliest you can find sort of English in the sense that we understand it would be maybe close to like a thousand A.D. There there was there was some primitive forms of it. Real quick though, I, I wanted you to be able to finish your point, but you're bringing in a lot of information that we shouldn't assume our audience knows. So quick little bit here about biblical manuscripts. So in case you didn't know, no one has the original letter to the Romans, uh, letter to the Ephesians. It's called the autographs. The actual, so it means like when you go to a, um, to a sporting goods store, like a collectible store, they have a certification that says, oh, this, like I got a hockey stick that someone from my church got me signed by Dougie Hamilton, a defenseman for the Carolina Hurricanes. Right. Came with a certification. He actually put pen to paper or, or pen to stick, so to speak. Yeah. That's called an, an original autograph. Um, I'm sorry, uh, I'm reading Bickford's comment here. No, that's not what I said, Bickford. Um, I'll get, so the original autograph is the actual pen to paper that Paul put, that John put, that Luke put. I mean, not you, Luke, but the the, the original Luke, um, the, the one I, I assume you were named after. Yeah, no, that, I, I, am the, I am the original. If you're the original Luke, then you know what? With King James Version, if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> that makes about as much sense. So... Um, so the original autographs are the ones that actually got pen to paper. Now there are many hockey sticks out there that could be signed by other athletes that are copies. You know, what they do is they have, they have someone or they have a machine that does an exact replica of that signature um, and they sell it. So what we have are copies and Mm -hmm. they were copied by copyists, uh, people who paid great attention to the autographs and then transmitted them to another document and then to another document, because guess what? Gutenberg hadn't invented the Gutenberg press yet. So um, they had yeah, to so copy are, things by hand. Yeah, these, these, are, these are handwritten copies. And there's actually a whole school of study 
of the various manuscript traditions called textual criticism, where we look at, and here's, here, let me, let's say this first. The Bible is by far, and it's not even fractionally close, the single best, most thoroughly copied book of antiquity for any work before, I don't know, maybe 500 AD, yeah. maybe 1000 AD. We have, we have over 5,800 manuscripts. And yeah. what happens in textual criticism, and they create, so right now, most of our Bibles are based off the NA28, that, that Nestling and text, which is these 5,800 um, scripts. Some of them are just pieces of parchment. Others are full manuscripts, but they piece them together and they compare them. And this is the wonderful thing about being in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. You, They can come, we have the technology to compare all of the differences between each text. So like it could be a missing period. It could be an uncrossed T. I'm using English as an example. Obviously this is in the Greek for the New Testament. So mm -hmm. they compare all those things to see how accurate it is. And what you can actually do is I had a demonstration for my church. And I'm sorry, I don't have that prepared for today, but you can trace all of these copies back to an original copy based on how it was copied. It is the science behind it. Like it makes... Bible nerds look cool. I mean, like Luke, Luke looks like a cool guy compared to these folks. They are people that got like these big rim glasses. They can look like, I mean, they probably play Dungeons and Dragons on the weekends. Okay. Like we are talking no, no, no. to the nth degree. These guys do not have time for Dungeons and Dragons because I know how much time it takes to do this kind of work. These are the sorts of people who are obsessed with tiny ancient scripts of paper for months at a time. Yes, it is. An, it, like we are eternally indebted to them. Um, so anyway, yeah, so it is, it is incredible. So actually the accuracy, I just want to share this because I, I looked it up and I, and I did my research for that sermon. So I'm going off a of memory here. 99.5% accuracy of all those manuscripts yep. so essentially we have the original autographs recreated based on all this with a 99.5 percent having zero problem that half a percent it almost is like the death rate for covid ding ding so um the, the sorry i had to um <laughs> Uh, so th this is incredibly more accurate than the reporting numbers for COVID-19. So <laughs> the half a percent of what is like that, that margin of error, that half percent, none of them change the change, any doctrinal, um, like it's not like a, it's no doctrinal change whatsoever. Almost every single one of them is like, they forgot to put a T on the word cat something like that you know like it like it, it is so the, the the differences are so minuscule and have so little to do with the validity of um scripture that i'm it's negligible the bigford defending his people saying don't mock text critics bigford is as close to those people without being those people as possible <laughs> But to, to sort of add one little thing onto Eric's point, not only do we have an, an incredibly large amount of, of manuscripts, not only are the most of the errors minuscule and certainly at the end of the day, largely irrelevant in terms of meaning, 
But also one of the other amazing things about the way that God preserved scripture is that we have multiple strains of manuscripts. So uh, I, I don't want to get into details because I'm not super knowledgeable, but I do know at one point in Muslim history, there was a lot of controversy about, and this was fairly early in the Muslim faith. There's a lot of controversy about several different sort of strands of copying of the Quran. And a lot of the ones that were not considered orthodox were gathered and burned. And mm. so we don't, we don't have tons of different strands of copying for um, that particular religious text. I was like, they're trying to hide something. For the Bible, oh, I'm not, I'm not making that insinuation. For the Bible, one of the amazing things, we, we don't have just one family of manuscripts copied, copied, copied. We have multiple families. And if you compare one family to another, so for example, the line that came out of Byzantine compared to the line that came out of um, Constantinople, I'm sorry, those are the same place. What was the other one that came to mind? Uh, uh, Alexandria incredibly similar not identical but incredibly similar so that if you if we only had one of those major families right if we had only one of them maybe someone could say at some point the text was corrupted someone got involved they changed the meaning we can't know what it actually said we actually have multiple families and so if there had been a major change made it wouldn't be reflected in the others they're like one big happy family uh, no, it, it, it's a, it's amazing how harmonious the um, the the biblical testimony is. Now, why are we bringing up all this stuff about textual criticism and manuscript tradition? Well, all of this is really connected to KJV onlyism. Yes, because part of what's going on here is, um, and again, this is where different KJV onlyists have different views depending on their traditions. Some don't even bother with arguments about original language. They'll just say, uh, hang on a second. Look, we're trying to do a professional show here, bud. Uh, you got to take that, bud? I don't know. I'm not. I don't know how to turn the ringer off. So we're just going to let it ring for a minute. Oh, my goodness. Just just pick it up and hang, hang, hang up. No, I'm not going to hang up on the person you're calling. They need to be able to leave a message. Oh, well, are we going to hear the message? No. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, what I was saying was there are some KGB owners who don't even bother with, sorry, I'll, I'll have to figure out before the next show how I actually turn off the ringer. Uh, I want people to be able to call, but obviously that was loud. Well, hey, did you watch the show where Mike's dog like went to the bathroom in his office? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're doing okay. <laughs> so some KTB only is they just take sort of the they just start from the, the English version. So they basically make the argument that in 1611 God inspired the KJV Bible. Nothing more needs to be said. The ones who I think are a, a bit more reasonable will go back more to the text from which various translations uh, are are translated. And KJV is Textus Receptus, right? Yes. The yeah. And so there's one particular sort of um, family of manuscripts called the Textus Receptus, which means the received text. And they'll point to that one and say, well, that's the inspired line, right? That's, that's the proper lineage. Um, the issue there is that if you actually 
dig into where the Textus Receptus came from, it's not the oldest manuscript tradition, and it's not necessarily the most reliable. It seems to me that the best way to come up with the text of scripture is to look at, which is, this is what textual critics do, is you look at the various families and you sort of use the, the tools of textual criticism to determine what was the most likely original reading. And then you use that. And sometimes you put little footnotes to say, hey, this is where we might be wrong. There's some controversy here. There's some different readings. It could mean this. We think it means that. And I think that is a perfectly functional uh, scripture. That's a perfectly, perfectly functional way to have and to distribute and to teach and learn the scriptures. There are some people who would say that's not, because that's not infallible, you can't call it the word of God. I think part of what makes this whole controversy worse in recent years is you have scholars like Bart Ehrman, who in the postmodern era basically say, if you can't say with 100% certainty and accuracy what exactly word for word the text was, then you can't say with any certainty what any of it ever said. Yep. That's why no one likes Bart Ehrman. Well, there are lots of atheists who love him. Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, there are a few things. The, the, the realm, you know, I did like an hour worth of, of reading up on King, Jim, King James onlyism today. I did at one time care more about this than I do now because I just, I'm not around people who are King James onlyists. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't read up on it very much. Mm -hmm. um, but I just remember, so I went into this sphere today and I was like, oh, this brings back so many thoughts, um, so much. It, it, what it does, the problem with the King James only movement is it taints anyone who uses the King James only, at least in, like for me personally, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Like I'm saying this is a bad thing. This is, this is my own prejudice. Um, I need to repent of it and I'm actively trying. So um, when someone like is using the King James version, which again, it's a great translation. Okay? Yes. Um, it's not one that you or I use regularly, but it is, it, it is a good version. If someone, if someone grew up with the King James version, like they've memorized passages from it, then keep I, would, it. I would encourage them to keep using it. Yeah. Amen. I, I couldn't agree more. So, so but when someone has a King James, because I had someone when I first got to my church and they were using the King James, and I said, hey, just to clarify, do you, are you like a King James only person? He's like, no, I don't think you need to have to use the King James. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And I left it at that. Yeah. So, um, but I always feel like I have to have that conversation. I don't feel like I have to have that conversation with someone who uses a different translation. Um, so, I think I think that's unfair to anyone who likes the King James version. Like I'm mm -hmm. saying, it's unfair to them, um, and I'm saying that the people that are in this camp that that think that King James is the only version of the uh, the only translation that you can use are so far out in left field. They're not even in the ballpark anymore. Um, mm -hmm. I've watched some of these folks on YouTube. A lot of them are part of the IFB or the Independent Independent Fundamentalist uh, Baptist Church which is a loose affiliation of churches. Um, I've, I've listened to their preaching. There's one guy in particular, Shane Anderson. Uh, have you seen him on YouTube? No, I've not seen him. Oh my goodness. I've seen a few of them. 
there's some great memes out there. Do you recommend? Anyone? Do you re- do you recommend that I familiarize myself with? Uh, it's funny. I th- I recently read that he got banned from YouTube, so I'm not quite sure. Um, mm. But uh, he anyway. They're nuts, man. Like like I many of them I question whether or not they're even they're even followers of Jesus. Like so. So let's let's go ahead and sort of get into some of the nuance here. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying all King James onlyists. I'm saying like there's a certain segment of the population where I question because they're so uncharitable, like it, they're so hateful. Like I'm not saying like hey they're sharp in their critique, like a James White or an R.C. Sproul or something mm-hmm. like. I'm saying like they're certified rear ends, man. Um, like they <laughs> they make me look like a teddy bear. You know, like if I look like a teddy bear in comparison to you, then we've yeah. got issues. I think compared to some of them, you look like a teddy bear wrapped in cotton candy and stuffed with clouds. With rainbows coming out my eyes. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hold on. Let me just make sure we're not missing any. Anyone who tried the translation of English to German uh, can have issues. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Let me say that. Let me say this first. Let's deal with some of the nuance in that spectrum I mentioned earlier. And this is where I think we do need to delineate between squirrels and burglars. Okay. So I think you and I have already made it clear. People who use the KJV prefer it. No problem. No problem. No. Nope. Um, people who say it's the best translation and the one we should use. I disagree with them, but I don't feel the need to argue with them. I, I, I don't think I think they're wrong. But what if they're, they're in your church. What if they're uh, in your church and, and they're saying, "Pastor, you need to use the King James version." As long as they're not like publicly rebuking me, even if they were to do that privately. I mean, if if they're willing to have a conversation about um, the text of Scripture and how we got it, I will have that. But if they, that's just sort of like their conviction but they're willing to accept that it's not mine or our churches. I don't even feel the need to argue with them. Fair. Okay. Then you have people who say, who would say it's the only legitimate translation, the one that we should use. And if you're using another one, you're wrong. Right. And they make us think about it. Okay. The people that that Richard is most concerned about. Yes. Uh, they're mean about, yeah, let me read. Cause Richard was the one who, who inspired this episode. A lot of KGB only people I have to deal with are mean about it. They'll argue until I quit arguing about it. So, um, I don't do it anymore. Yeah. And look, I think that's biblical. Don't participate in fruitless arguments. Yeah. If, if, and this is, let me, let me throw out a couple quick resources here. Cause one of them, I just gotta, I just, I'm going to, uh, post a TGC article Okay. how to engage with King James Version only believers. Yes. So here are my two resources, and they're actually both from James White, who I would say is the leading authority when it comes to the KJV only controversy, and it's probably not even close. Um, first, his book, The KJV Only Controversy, fantastic. If you're interested in this, have to read that book. Um, also, he had, are you, so you asked me about um, Shane Anderson. Are, did you mean Stephen Anderson? Yes, that's the guy yeah. I meant. Steven Anderson, I'm very. Oh I'm, my goodness! Do you I'm remember? Very, do you remember the meme of him standing on top of his pulpit and like pointing down at the ground? And there was a meme of um, I think it said, uh, King James, King James onlyus, and then the ground was um, it, it said, it said good doctrine or right theology, and he's like pointing down, yelling at it, like like it's wrong. What? 
Now, what's funny is Steven Anderson, I would actually say, is not on the most extreme end of the spectrum. But he, he is on an extreme end. For sure. Um, so I was actually uh, – the other ref, the other resource I was going to reference is there is a conversation, a live between Steven Anderson and, and James White. Yes, and, I recommended that to Richard. Yes. I, I, it's like two or three hours. And it, it does it does two things beautifully. Number one, it lays out the essence of the disagreement. They get to most of the key the key arguments. Yeah. Secondly, and this is where so we sort of sometimes will criticize White or others for being abrasive, but here I think he modeled perfectly. Um, Doctor White knew when the conversation was no longer worth having. Yeah, he very calmly ended it and left the room. Yeah, and there is a there. It, there is an appropriate time for you to acknowledge this conversation is no longer fruitful. Um, I politely decline to continue it. It's kind of, I had a conversation with a brother today and they said I had to turn off Facebook because I'm seeing Christians be so mean to one another regarding COVID and politics that I just had to turn it off. Um, it's at that time when you realize this is no longer edifying for me and for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta go. There's a time I think that we have to, you know, allow ourselves to get scarred in the yeah. midst of battle for yeah. the betterment of our brothers in Christ. But um, yeah. there does come a time where we have to, I think, cut our losses and go. This is just not going anywhere. And there, that's there's wisdom and prudence that you have to use there. You know. Yeah, and and there's one more subcategory we need to talk about here because there are some people you're gonna have to choose not to have this argument with. But there's one more category of people. For whom this is very different. And this is the King James Version onlyists who would say, if you use any other translation of the Bible, you can't be saved. Mm-hmm. They are I don't think Shane Anderson says that, right? No, that's why I said that's yeah. why I said he's not the most extreme because he he allows for people, he would say those people are maybe in danger, but that that you can find the gospel in there. Also, I, I do believe I've heard him say essentially Calvinists, so guys like you and I are demonic oh i'm i'm not i'm not a calvinist you can't put me in that category okay, well, you're close to, well i think you're a calvinist I'm, you just I'm calvinism i'm calvinism adjacent oh, calvinism adjacent oh, you can't you know what you are you're like the person who wants to choose their own gender <laughs> you know a duck a duck <laughs> a duck a goose is a goose a duck calling itself a goose is still a duck you know um as the conversations that you and i have had yes uh, Anyway, we're not going to have the conversation about Cal. I would just say that he he would refer to people like you and I that, that have a monergistic view of salvation. Yes. Have a lordship salvation view. Yes. Um, that our, our teaching is demonic. Um, yes. And yes. they do call in the question our salvation. So, yes. um, so he might not call your salvation the question based on your use of the ESV, but your view that God is sovereign in salvation, he would absolutely take issue with. Yeah, and, and that's – hang on. I want to come to that in a minute because I think that's dealing with the next thing we want to talk about. But let me finish this point. If someone says that you are saved based on which translation of Scripture that you read, that is an anti-Christ message. It's, yeah. it's not just wrong. It is anti-gospel. It's a different gospel. Yes, and those people, we don't need to be rude to them or unkind, but we need to actually um, address those, those kinds of arguments and those kinds of people as anti-Christs because that's what they are. Yeah. So that that's those that's sort of the spectrum. Now you raise an important point here, Eric, which is I think the uh, in some ways the elephant in the room when you talk to these people, 
and this is this is a challenge I think for all believers, which is that it can be difficult to extricate or sort out your tradition and the clear teaching of scripture, that it's very easy. And I say this as someone who's raised as an Advent Christian, it's very easy to grow up in a certain tradition and to basically just use the Bible to confirm the positions you already hold Mm -hmm. rather than rigorously testing what you believe. And mixed in with a lot of King's James, King James onlyism, mixed in with that, is a tremendous amount of deeply entrenched tradition, and uh, a, a a deeply entrenched uh, what is it called confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, it is deeply entrenched tradition wrapped in an almost impenetrable layer of confirmation bias, where every piece of evidence that you can bring to the table only confirms their argument because that's all they will allow it to do. Now, to your point, Eric, um, there's one of the traditions that shows up a lot in King James King James onlyism, not all of it, but some of it, which is what I would call free willism or oh. uh, um, or decisionism it's it's the idea which 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 our good friend rc sproul called heresy (laughs) (laughs) it's the idea that i'm trying to remember who it was i heard a teacher uh, sort of a well-known christian teacher recently tell this story and it was great uh he told the story about how he went to see his in-laws and and this is not about me by the way because i recently went to see my in-laws this did not happen to me he went to see his in-laws, and they were talking about a one of their sons who had become apostate. He had abandoned the faith and for many years had lived a very licentious life and claimed he was an avowed atheist. And they said, but he prayed, a pr- he prayed the sinner's prayer when he was five years old, so we know he's still saved. Uh, and it, and it's, it's this idea, like it's some of these traditions, right, that – sort of run alongside biblical teaching but then if you take them alone all of a sudden it's like this isn't even the same ballpark of belief it's almost like if you go and take like there's a difference between taking a class on psychology and being a psychologist like there's a difference between reading a single line in scripture and taking scripture in in its totality Mm -hmm. and understanding what it says. So taking one passage, one verse out of context, and I mean, not only out of context of where it is in the Bible, but out of the Bible itself, like not even in a, in a, in a biblical context, Mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to make not only errors, but grievous ones. So, you know, the issue with, you know, with Shane Anderson and some of those folks, the, the King James only is Steve, whatever, man, S Anderson. Okay. Just call, just call him the, the revered Reverend Anderson. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and the thing, what you brought up his conversation with white, mm-hmm. there were parts of that conversation. That I thought they were both charitable. I, it, that is the tamest I've ever seen. Um, Steven Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do appreciate his willingness in that conversation, but he'll tell you, like there needs there doesn't need to be any fruit of salvation like our obedience there doesn't need in one hand they'd say there doesn't need to be any obedience but then they force everybody in their church to wear a suit and tie or dresses if they're women um to church you know so it's it's just it's sad man so many people are being led astray 
hold on, hold on. So uh, I I missed doing this with Brian, and I'm going to do it now. I'm going to push back really hard on something here. Um, okay. Many believe the KJV was inspired. I can't say. Don't know. Um, I think that's an interesting response, considering that I've heard you say before, Brian, that you're not sure that the, at least, unless I misunderstood you, that the scriptures period are inspired. So it would be strange to say, I'm not sure if we can say the scriptures themselves are inspired, but it's fine for someone else to say that this English translation is. That, that, that seems a, a terribly inconsistent view to take. Now, if I've misunderstood you, I know you'll fire back and that's fine. Um, I do think though, Brian actually has struck at the heart of much of KJV onlyism, which Bickford actually mentioned earlier as well when he said, um, I've heard some say you can't be saved without the KJV also say Greek and Hebrew are wrong. Um, I, 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 <laughs> listen, if, if, if someone, if someone, oh my God, okay, all right, listen, I, the, the Red Bull's kicking in, all right? If, if you're having a conversation with, and not everybody needs to know the the original languages i don't know the original languages luke is learning the original languages bickford knows them um and he's growing in them um we can all agree whether or not we know them or not that they are incredibly important because it's the language that the authors wrote in the divinely inspired by the holy spirit authors put pen to paper in greek and in hebrew if you're going to say the Greek and Hebrew do not matter, then in my best impression of John MacArthur, go home. Okay, <laughs> go home. Yes, I'm um, not having a conversation. I'm I am not going to have a conversation with someone who says the Greek and the Hebrew don't matter. That is the most asinine, insane position. You can say I don't understand them. I need the English. You can like uh, I'm not gonna learn them because I just don't have time. I get that. That's okay. That is completely valid. But don't tell me that they don't matter. Um, uh, Brian, it's actually not stupid. That's what it is. S T O O P I D. Stupid. Oh, uh, I I missed I missed this I missed this. Uh, Brian, it's actually not our definition of inspiration. It's scriptures. It's scripture's definition, because the idea of biblical inspiration is actually taken from what scripture says about itself. So it, it's not, this, this is the difference, is that if you're someone who's going to claim that the King, King James version, right, is now the inspired version, you have to take that assertion out of thin air. You have to deny what the translators themselves said in the preface. Peter commends the works of Paul. Peter commends the works of Paul, which was written in what language, Luke? What language was it written in? Obviously, Old English. Um, that that is that that's S T O O P I D. Okay. Well, let me let me let me let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. If you're going to make the claim that that Old English translation is the, you have to pull that out of thin air. You have to you have to completely deny what the translators themselves said in their own preference to the translation. If you claim to believe in the inspiration of scripture in the sense that most Christians do, yeah, I know, Eric, it's so hard to tell what you think of things. Um, you, you are actually taking that doctrine from the scriptures themselves. 
you're not pulling it out of thin air. It's what the scriptures actually teach about scripture. Well, first off, let me let me just say this to, to Bigford. I'm not calling the people stupid, okay? I'm not saying that. I don't know where they come from. You're right. They could have been ta taught incorrectly. However, we are all susceptible, whether it's Luke or someone else, they're, they are susceptible to making stupid comments, stupid assertions, and things that just make no logical sense, myself included. Well, hold on, hold on. I think Bickford actually has made a real important point here, which is that so much of this is traditionalism. And there's another thing we need to discuss. Um, let, let me read Bickford's comment for those who might be listening and not watching. Um, some of the ones I've talked to were simply taught incorrectly. They're not stupid. They've been taught a lie. As long as they take part in an actual discussion and not just fight, I'll gladly talk to them about it. I, the other thing that we see a lot, a lot in King James only churches is the over exaltation of the position or figure of pastor. So Eric and I both would say that scripture teaches that there is a, there is a proper and appropriate amount of authority that you give to the leaders of your church. That authority does not extend to infallibility. And while they would never say, because I, I think they're self-deceived, while they would never say, a, a King James-only pastor, that they are the source of, of authority or, or of truth for their people, they would say that their King James Bible is. Um, when you see, it, see them for what they are, many of these people have grown up in churches where to challenge what the pastor says is to challenge the very word of God itself. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to have some compassion for the people who come out of these traditions because many of them have been spiritually abused. Mm -hmm. uh, 100% agree. And if someone does say the original languages don't matter, the response probably should not be that stupid. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> we... Look, uh, Eric is passionate about this uh, because it really, it really does. If you've never run into a King James only person, it's like uh, talking to a brick wall. It, it, it really, it really does cause great consternation amongst the body of Christ. And one of two things is happening: either that person is a genuine believer, and the enemy is sowing division between you and them, or they're not. Mm -hmm. They, they, they are of the Antichrist. They are opposed to the gospel, at least the one revealed in Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, and it, the, the other thing that's difficult, is, and this is where I think it actually is important that we have these conversations with these people, because what you will find is that when you speak to a really strident King James only um, proponent, you have a very hard time getting to the root of the disagreement. So much of it ends up being about peripheral things. So let's take an example, and this is one of the primary arguments levied. Uh, in favor of King James onlyism. If so, the King James Bible uses the word hell significantly more than any modern translation. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, if you look at the original text, there are two words, Gehenna and Sheol, that the King James uh, translators translated as hell. Mm -hmm. I think there is a pretty sound textual argument to make that. The, it's helpful to delineate between those words in translation to distinguish because they're two different things right to to distinguish between them mm -hmm. 
But what a King's James, King James only proponent will say is that those other translations are um, undercutting the biblical doctrine of hell because they don't have the word as many times, which if you think about it for a minute, actually betrays the assumption because they're making an argument on the basis of English words. And so it can be very difficult to actually get to the root of the disagreement because you are going to be, it's like ships passing in the night where you're talking about original languages and then they're making an argument based on the translated English. And so it, it, it's a good exercise in trying to get to the heart of the disagreement rather than talking past each other, which is what happens not just with King James only proponents, but in most disagreements, mm -hmm. most disagreements, most debates, both people are talking past each other and they never actually get to the, the root of the disagreement. Yeah. That's how I feel every time I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Luke, I've missed you. I've missed you. Well, Eric, I just, I just had the time of my life, man. That was a grand old time. I'm trying to think, is there anything else that is worth addressing? Is there anything else from the comment section? Any questions or comments? Maybe any experiences you've had? I've got another couple of articles that I'm going to share. This one's from CARM, C-A-R-M, um, that might be helpful. Yeah. Um, there's some good stuff on that website. I don't agree with everything that guy says, but um, he's got some good stuff. Let me say one more thing sort of on this subject. Uh, because it's interesting in talking about this controversy, we sort of have taken a pretty deep dive, or at least uh, not that deep, but we have taken a dive into textual criticism, manuscript tradition, a lot of very, very academic uh, uh, sciences regarding the interpretation and translation of scripture. And I would just say this, if you are someone who is completely new to this stuff, it is not nearly as scary as it seems at first. Because at first, uh, you know, Eric is tossing around things like Textus Receptus, and I'm talking about various lines of manuscript tradition, and it, it can sort of seem like uh, you're for, at the risk of making an excellent pun, like we're talking in another language. <laughs> and the, the, simple, the simple fact is that while the terminology might be new, the idea is actually pretty simple. God inspired the scriptures. He inspired the letters. He inspired the histories. He inspired the poetry. And then because people recognized this is special, they copied it. Generation after generation after generation, they copied it. And over time, what has happened is not only did they copy it, but they translated it. So they copied it, they translated it into their, the, the language that they knew and spoke. And in fact, let me say this really quickly. Um, maybe we can get in, into this sometime. Most of the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, they're not quoting the original Hebrew. They're actually quoting a Greek translation of the Hebrew. So even when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, and clearly the New Testament writers believed it was scripture, they're not quoting the original. They're quoting a translation. So, well, they're, they're quoting the Septuagint. Yes. Which, which they believe to be divinely inspired. Right. Well, which was a Greek translation of what was likely written in Aramaic or Hebrew. Yeah. Um, so all this to say, all, all that's going on here is people recognize this stuff was special. 
and they copied and translated it. And we have both the burden and the privilege, and I consider it much more privilege than burden, of having all the history before us, uh, or behind us rather, to call upon when it comes time for us to uh, determine what is reliable and to translate it into our native tongue. For sure. For sure. Oh, hold on. I, we got an interesting remark here from Mark. Okay. Do you see any connections between KJV-only advocates and non-Trinitarians? I'll Nothing let you that I can say on air. <laughs> I'll, I, I'll, I'll respond. I, I would say no in the sense that you don't have lots of KJV-only as two are non-Trinitarians, but yes in the sense that I think a lot of it boils down to traditionalism. It's the idea. It's the idea that we come to the text with certain assumptions, and those assumptions shape the text itself, or at least shape our interpretation of the text, rather than allowing the text itself to determine our assumptions. So that's the connection I would see. I've also seen in, again, in conversations with with um, both sides, whether it be digitally or in person. Um, it seems that there is often, maybe not always, but often a lack of um, respect for scholarship and um, history, hmm. a lack of respect for church history, a lack of, you know, um, a lack of, it's almost like, you know, for many, they think the church began in, here in America in 1776. Um, it's kind of like the King James only us believe this, <laughs> the, um, the church started in 1611 almost. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. it, it's just a complete lack of, of understanding. It, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy to, to only think of the church in the last hundred years when there's a 2000 year tradition. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting too, because I don't want to draw any undue connections, but despite the fact that we've. We look, we've spent an hour saying how wrong this view is, so I don't need to give any qualifications for what I'm about to say. There is something deeply Protestant about some of the KJV only attitude, the sense that we are going to submit to scripture over anything else, right? Uh, what they don't realize is they've actually supplanted scripture with tradition. But, but at least the the attitude itself is in some ways actually very Protestant because I don't think Luther would have taken the position that the KJV onlyists do, which is basically that there were no Christians for 1,500 years. There was there was like the first generation and now there's us. But I there is a great deal of church history leading up to 1519 that I think you would have to say much of what was considered the church was apostate. And so, I mean, it's, it's why I say today, um, the Roman Catholic church is, is anti-Christian, anti-gospel. They teach a different gospel, but that doesn't mean that there aren't Christians within the Roman Catholic right, church. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think that at the heart of King James only ism, you could say the same exact thing. Yes. Yes. And I'm sure there are KJV-only brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, if any of them have the opportunity to hear this, I would exhort you um, to 
receive the wonderful gift that God has given his church today of gobs and gobs of history, uh, of um, manuscripts, of various lines, of just like the wealth that we have in terms of biblical texts for uh, sorting through and translating is magnificent. And don't limit yourself to just that one family under an illusion of certainty. And, and if you have any complaints about how we handled the issue, you can email me at Luke Copeland 21. <laughs> I will, I will talk, I will talk to anyone who wishes to take issue with, uh, I think, I think with the exception of <laughs> you insinuating mental deficiency at one point, I think we handled this pretty, pretty well today. I mental deficiency on the, on not the King James only, uh, oh, you mean the stupid part. I yeah. said the argument was stupid. Not, not that the people are stupid. Oh, yes, you clarified. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. great show, Luke. Great show. You know what I have to say for today's show? Is, are you going to play a song? Yeah. Oh. Tom's going to have to edit this out. I Poor know. Why do, you, why do you do this to Tom? Uh, well, it was a good show. It's great to be back. Uh, really interesting subject. Last, and, hey, for those who are chiming in at the end, I just want to plug this again. Penny Crusade. Penny Crusade. Go back. I In the beginning of the show, I gave the link to Penny Crusade. Go give to them. They're at 50% of what they were at this time last year. Um, either that or you hate the gospel. You hate our missionaries overseas. Help out. Give 50 cents, $50, or however much you can. Do whatever you can. Also, um, all proceeds minus the you know transaction fees and whatnot on my website um, for, my, for my book, ericbreynolds.com. You can go on there. You can buy the book. All proceeds are going to Penny Crusade for the month of August. So yeah. help 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 the people across the world, man, get the gospel out. Penny Crusade, the only crusade that is Bible and banter approved. Yes. You know what? That should be the tagline for Penny Crusade next year. I feel I feel like that's gonna come back to bite us when people mention the Billy Graham Crusades. <laughs> I don't, and, here. End of I, don't, I don't see a problem here. I don't see a problem here. <laughs> um, do we want to get to the catechism? Oh yes, let's do the catechism. Okay. All right. Let's well, you start. did like you did the whole thing where you played the song. I just figured it was over. I forget. Well, I forgot this about you that you don't know when to end things. So let's uh, let's do the catechism. All right. So Luke, you should know all about this. What is sin? Oh man, I missed your burns. Uh, I, I don't know the catechism answer. I'm going to take a shot at it. Sin is rebellion against God and the rejection of His authority. Pretty close. Pretty close. I would accept that. I would accept that answer. This is what the book answer is, though. The worship of anything other than God, which is idolatry. Mm. Funny note: idolatry is what I call Christmas trees. Idolatry. 
Why do you do this? We don't have time to talk I about put it, it. I put it up in our set when we put it up in our sanctuary at church. I, I refer to it the last two years in the sermon. I say, Hey, welcome to the idolatry. Uh, should we talk about sin for a minute and then end the show? Uh, I, I like that. I like that. That sin is idolatry, it's the worship of anything other than, than God. It is the exaltation of either yourself or anything else. Uh, to the position of ultimate authority, because anytime that we disobey God, we are attempting to supplant him as the ultimate authority of our lives. Bingo, bango. That's good, man. Uh, you, you learned a little bit about idolatry on your, on your three weeks away. You called me up in the middle of the night to tell me that you read my paper on John Calvin in the second yeah. Yes, I, I, another uh, that'll be an interesting one for us to get into in the future. You know what? I feel like we need to we need to quit skirting around it. At some point, we're just gonna have to talk Calvin or Calvinism on the show because we always sort of hint at it, and then we go, "That's for another day." So maybe that day should be someday soon. Calvinism, also known as biblical theology, or as Stephen Anderson would call it, heresy and demonology. <laughs> well, it's Stephen Anderson, so. <laughs> <laughs> um anderson if you if you listen to this um your sermon the little section from your sermon about he that pisseth against the wall is one of the funniest things i've ever seen so thank you so much can you explain my, now now you have to explain if if you will just youtube pisseth against the wall it is five minutes of hilarious eisegesis for which I have found no equal in my 30 years. My goodness. Okay. All right. Hey, you did a, you did read a, a book recently that you are writing a, you wrote a, a recommendation for. Yes, indeed. And I'm going to read it word for word. <laughs> this is a gem, guys. This is a gem. I'm going to read it word for word because it was very carefully constructed. <clears throat> okay. well, this is, of course, Eric, tell them what the book is. So uh, yours truly is about to publish a, another book. Um, so I'm sorry. You're going to have to hear more about uh, me trying to pump my book sales. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, this is a book that is written. It is a, how would you describe it, Luke? Um, well, I'm, going, I'm going to describe it in a minute. Can you tell them the title or what it's about? It's called, it's called Discover ancient truths for today. And uh, it is a summation of my own statement of faith broken down in 20 chapters and um, points the reader to how these biblical truths lead to doxology, which is worship of God, the right worship of God, and the practical nature of said doctrine. It's a primer of theology. It's not meant to be a systematic theology. This isn't replacing Burkhoff or Frame or anyone like that. It's not replacing the institutes. It is simply a primer. Um, yeah, and I, and I would say you can read it in a weekend easily. So that's here, my... here is my description of the book. <laughs> if there can be such a thing as reformed theology for dummies, this is it. <laughs> With the profundity of Westminster and the brevity of Nicaea, Eric lays out the essential truths of Christian faith and asks the questions that will bury those truths deep in your heart and mind. Theology doesn't have to be overwhelming or intimidating, nor should it ever be shallow or oversimplified. This book walks that tightrope brilliantly. 
Mr. Reynolds' writing, saturated in scripture, establishes each doctrine, line upon line, precept upon precept, as all faithful biblical teaching should. And what I appreciate so much about this theological primer that Eric has written is that it is thorough and simple. It's simple. Uh, it's written for common people. So theology doesn't have to be scary, but it is important. Well, thank you, Luke. I very much appreciate that. I'm going to clip this and use it in promos. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, you sent that to me, what, last night? The the Or at least when I read it, I think I read it last night. I just thought comparing my work to the Westminster standards and the, and the Nicene creed all in one sentence is not, I never thought anyone would give me such a, a, a compliment. And I even told you to reword it because I thought it was too um, hyperbolic. And I will even admit, I meant everything I said in that, in that, uh, those statements except for maybe the references to Westminster and Nicaea. That might be a little bit over the top. Which which now I'm going to I'm actually gonna I'm asking them to put it on the cover. Um, <laughs> <laughs> compared to the Westminster standards and the Nicene Creed, Luke Copeland, comma. <laughs> All right. Well I guess we should end it there. Uh, great seeing all of you. Great discussion today. Eric, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure, my friend. Um, yeah, man. We'll see you guys on Thursday. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs>